Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today I'm interviewing Mike Tobin, former CEO of Telecity. Mike's got 30 years experience as a tech entrepreneur. He used to do it one business at a time and now is working with a number of public and PE-backed businesses, 15 across multiple continents, multiple countries, multiple time zones. He's got significant charitable interests. Some years ago, he ran 40 marathons in 40 days. Now he's preparing for a trek across Antarctica, unaided this time next year. And he started a podcast with his son, and he's written two books. It's just tiring, listen to Mike. One of his books is on not having work-life balance, but on combining work and life so that you can do both simultaneously. We have a wide-ranging conversation. And thank you, Mike, for being so open and honest about some of the personal trials and tribulations in your life that have made you the human being you are today. As I was recording the podcast using voice over IP on a conference bridge and recording it, felt to me the first five minutes was a bit choppy. But if you're listening to this, bear with it. It gets much better. It's pretty good after the first five or so minutes. Just bear with it. Cheers. Hi, I'm Mike Tobin. I'm a serial technology entrepreneur. I've been in technology for the last 30 odd years. Previously ran a listed public company uh, called Telecity Group for around 13 years, and we took it from six million pounds to 3.6 billion uh, when we sold it to our US acquirers in 15. Subsequent to that, I've been uh, essentially a non-exec and investor in multiple technology businesses around the world, with uh, primarily with private equity and some VCs as well. And I'm also quite passionate in the charity space, having raised lots of money for um, children's causes, in particular, you know, the empowerment, welfare, and education of children. A couple of years ago, I, I ran 40 marathons in 40 days to raise money for the Prince's Trust on their 40th anniversary. I sleep in the streets every year um, to raise money for homeless children in the UK, of which there is an incredible 60,000. And a number of other initiatives that I, that I do, I think I'll be walking the, the length of the Antarctic continent uh, next year with uh, my good friend, Lewis Moody, to raise money for a Children's Brain Tumor Trust, many charitable causes. And... Uh, I've written a couple of books. One was a management book um, called Forget Strategy, Get Results. And the other was a, um, a self-help book, if you like, self-help genre, which was uh, designed to give an alternative view on work-life balance and rather sort of drive people towards work-life integration, which I think is more sustainable. And I also am the chairman of a listed company called Audioboom, which is Europe's largest podcast platform. And uh, subsequently, I decided to understand a little bit about more about the uh, business by producing my own podcast platform, podcast channel, which I do with my son, Nelson. So we have a Generation X versus Millennium 
view of life on a regular basis. Um, and so I've got a few episodes out already. And so that's probably about me. What's the podcast called? Um, so it's the Tobin podcast. We've got three episodes out, as I mentioned. The first one, we're both Arsenal supporters. So we did a um, generational view on the chain between Wenger and Emery this season. The second one, we kind of started to move on to different topics. That, and, and actually, the, the most interesting one, I think, is the third one. It's just not long been released. I'll leave you to hunt that down while we, while we speak and see what you think about the topic. <laughs> okay. And Mike, you've had, had a number of jobs yourself and you work as a non-exec or chair for a number of businesses at the moment. What's been your favorite job? I get a kick out of creating value, right? And I like delivering on successful projects. So I don't know whether there's a favorite job, but I think the thing I get the most enjoyment out of is when we take a business and we create significant multiples of value on top of that and we sell it. That's a neat circle of life, if you like. And so when I started in 2015 on these projects, you know, I kind of expected to go three to four years, maybe even five years with each asset before there was a decent return. And in the interim, being non-exec, they would cover sort of expenses and give me non-exec fees, that sort of thing to keep the boat ticking over. And actually, it's worked out incredibly close to that plan. And so now, um, you know, I look for exits every six months. So one asset goes through that three to four year cycle, of which now I'm four years in. And if I get an exit every six months, that's a nice contribution to the coffers. But then it's a little bit like cabs off ranks. So as one exits, I've got to be filling the hole with a new one. That's the cycle, which is enjoyable. I think you start it from beginning and you see it all the way through to a successful ending. Oh, fantastic. And what's the worst job you've ever had? When you're in situations where, you know, you've got sort of very difficult shareholders, you've got uh, very powerless leadership in management. It's never a pleasant thing to go in there and have to kind of shake things up to the extent of moving people on and, and restructuring and things like that. And when I was at Telecity back in sort of 2002, the business then was um, Redbus actually, before we consolidated it into Telecity. And Redbus essentially had, had raised 400 million on the stock exchange and promptly spent it. They'd used it as a lifestyle vehicle between the founders. And, you know, it had 500 people. It was burning 2.4 million a month and there were 6 million in the bank. So coming in, you had to do something pretty radical. Firing sort of 420 people two weeks before Christmas is probably one of the worst things I've ever had to do. And, you know, I was sort of sworn out, spat at. But the choice was either doing that before Christmas and giving them a month's money to get through Christmas, plus the knowledge of maybe tightening their belt and not spending too much over that period. Or alternatively, not telling them until after Christmas, and then they lose their job with no extra money and with probably the debt they built up over that period. So chose to do it early rather than later and just had to concentrate on the 80 jobs that saved. But that was still a very, very unpleasant process. Difficult decision to make. Yeah. When you go into a business then, do you have now a playbook? Do you have five things, 10 things that you go looking at, leave us to pull? I don't know if there's a playbook, but, but you know, business isn't complicated. There's a set of things that need to work well for business to be successful. There's an environment that needs to be created for people to be free of fear to drive a business. And then you know, the simple things like you, know, you need cash. You, know, you can be incredibly successful and get lots and lots of orders and you fulfill those orders with you know, your suppliers and you're going so fast, you're selling it to all these big corporates and everything else. And suddenly you find out that they're, they're paying you on 90 days and your suppliers wants 30 days and you run out of cash and go bankrupt. So you know, success in itself 
doesn't just um, sort of depend on, on getting the top line right, although that's an incredibly important point and it's where everything starts from. You know, you've got to understand the sort of the therefores of the P&L in particular down to, down to cash. And so simple things like that, they apply to every company, right? There's no magic source there. It's just simply looking at it and saying, as the old Dickens adage was, you know, sort of earned 10p, you know, spent 9p happiness, earned 10p, spent 11p, you know, misery. That's kind of important. I probably uh, allowed for inflation on those numbers. <laughs> when you go into businesses, do you see common problems? There's one thing that, that is invariable when you get new listed companies for a start, right? So when um, a company goes public, often it's too early. And it doesn't have the critical mass to attract today's investment community. Therefore, it ends up having really poor liquidity in the stock. And even if it's doing well, the stock price doesn't reflect the performance. So you sit there with a frustrated management team um, who then start to go very optimistic on everything in the hope that that drives the share price. And again, listed companies, it's not about a massive growth. It's about doing a little bit more than you told the market you would do. And so again, if you do 10 and you've told the market 11, your share price goes down. If you've done 10 and you've told the market nine, your share price goes up. Your absolute performance is no different, but it's the performance relative to expectations that counts. So I find that a lot of these you know, recently uh, listed companies, in particular on AIM, there's challenges with liquidity, challenges with stock price interest from the institutions. Then it becomes an issue where management of expectations has to be reset. So that's something very, very typical in newly listed businesses. But then in, in terms of others, you know, you've got businesses that have kind of been very, very comfortable doing their thing for a while, but not realizing that one has to innovate the businesses in order to survive. And, and you know, the term, the term Uber now is a verb as well as a noun, right? And your business can be Ubered if you don't constantly innovate and constantly protect yourself from other people trying to trying to do the same thing. And you know, one of the things that's changed with technology over the last five years is up until five years ago, all technology was about how do I do this faster? How do I do this easier? How do I do it cheaper? And now people are looking at technology say, well, how do I not need to do that again? Right? And that's a very different approach to business. It's not trying to extract a little bit more efficiency or a little bit more margin. It's saying, I just want to kill off that need. You know, Uber's worth more than Europe Car, Hertz and Avis put together as a market cap, right? And they don't own a single asset. You know, historically, Europe Car and Avis would be competing with each other on pricing. They'd be looking at how to reduce the cost base of having a, a rental car desk at airports and all these sorts of things. And Uber comes along and just says, well, yeah, to be fair, we don't need to do that. And so then they had to innovate. And then now you can order a, a Hertz car um, within a couple of hours, you can pick it up from the roadside, you put your phone against the windscreen, you open the door, you use it for a couple of hours and you, you lock it again and that's it. They've had to completely innovate the way that they operate by using technology to counteract some of the issues that people like Uber, but many others, many others have delivered. And of course now Uber is in a way getting Ubered because their mass market approach, which has driven them with so much success, is starting now to crumble a little bit, in my opinion, because things like service levels are quite poor. I don't know if you've experienced it, but you know, lots of cancellations from the drivers. Um, surge is always applicable nowadays. All of the values that they originally had, which was incredibly efficient, incredibly cheap, are now being surpassed by companies like 
Wheelie, for example. So Wheelie has S-classes, E-classes. They're more expensive than Uber, but not by much, but they never cancel on you. They never have a surcharge uh, or a surge fee. There are people spotting the chinks in the armor always with businesses, and they're trying to exploit those markets. Yes, and they'll be attacked at the bottom end from e-bicycles. Here I am in Sydney, and there are Lime e-bicycles all over the place. And, uh, of course, only a year ago, there were lots of bicycles, you know, all over Sydney. And now, why would you get on a bicycle and pedal when you could get on an e-bike and just... Interestingly enough, there's a couple of things. So um, if you look at the bicycle market in China, when I go to China, I've got a business out there, you see literally bicycle mountains beside the road. If you want to Google Chinese bicycle mountains, you'll see what I mean. But you can be driving down a road and you will literally see piled up bicycles, not orderly parked like you would see in, in the UK or probably in Sydney as well. These things are literally just piled on top of each other like a rubbish dump. But you see lots and lots of them all the way down the road. So someone's gone and invested in these things and then gone too far. And there's, there's now a, a glut on the market, right? It's a really interesting problem and opportunity because if someone had the wherewithal, they could probably gather up all these discarded bicycles now and, and probably ship them somewhere else and, and sell them for very cheap but a significant profit. Um, yeah. But in the UK, you know, Uber now is looking at starting up not e-bicycles but e-scooters. Okay, uh-huh. the Uber e-scooter is already available in the US. You know, it's just that one little bit more light, if you like, than the bike. But at the moment, there's regulatory controls over e-scooters in the UK. So technically, they're illegal. And so are e-bikes, by the way, because they require a license. I don't know whether anyone, anyone's actually been banned or, or fined for using a scooter, but uh, certainly e-scooters are, are not allowed. By that, you don't mean a lightweight motorbike. You mean actually like a scooter. Literally a scooter that used to push around as a kid. I remember, I'm old enough to remember little scooters where you put one foot on it and push with the other one. Well, this is the same, right? But with a little motor in it. Aha. That sounds fantastic. And so you just think they're going to arrive and get sued? You see, the thing is that it's already happening in the US. And so technology is like, is like toothpaste, right? Once it's out the tube, you can't uninvent something. You can't put it back in the tube. So once you've got the technology invented, once you've got a, an application that actually is, is established as something that people really want to do, it's very hard to stop it happening, really hard to stop it happening. And legislation that tries to do that historically has crumbled. So the best way to do it is to try to sort of work with these innovations. You know, in the UK, around London in particular, roads are being taken out of commission left, right and centre. Like, you know, large roads are becoming very narrow roads because they're introducing cycle lanes and pedestrian areas. And while this is causing massive congestion, actually, because they haven't done anything to limit the number of cars, the the number of cars is still rising, yet they're making less route availability um, because they're wanting to incentivize people to move to non-polluting solutions for travel in city. Now, this is a non-polluting solution for travel in city. So you've got to think about it in a way of, okay, how do I legislate for it rather than against it? What are the trends in the businesses that you're involved in, sort of large-scale trends do you see that some of your, the firms you're involved in are, are riding? I think there's, there's a couple of ones that I'm involved in. I'm sure there are more that I'm not involved in, but there's three, I would say, that are really standing out for me. One is the Internet of Things, and we haven't seen this yet, really, but it will be so prolific over the next decade 
And what this is, is a, is a massive growth in devices connected to the internet, right? You could be as creative as you possibly can be on this and still probably not capture every device that there's going to be. You would put a, a chip under your milk carton in the fridge and when it gets lighter the chip detects it and, and sends a message to say buy more milk and you can put these things in in everywhere and early adopter little things like that are are your 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 amazon buttons that you put by your your washing machine detergent or your toilet paper store or whatever and you wherever you need it you hit the button and that automatically orders from amazon but that's a, a manual driven internet of things device but but actually most of them so around for example the around london they have um, weather analysis on, on the top of many of the street lamps there. And if you think about um, Uber's, many other car insurance companies have devices in car now so that they can monitor the way you drive. And if you drive responsibly, staying within the law and, and et cetera, et cetera, you get a discount on your insurance. Well, that's a vertical application of Internet of Things. But if you took the fact that that insurance company already has the device in the car, we've got more CCTV cameras in London than probably any other city in, in the world per capita. And we've got these um, analysis of weather for that street, not, not just of the south of England. You could then say if someone has an accident, you could package up how the guy was driving, what the weather was like, um, some CCTV footage of the accident. You could wrap all this up electronically without human intervention, send the guy an email after his accident before he's even got out of his car. He could have a settled deal. And that's a horizontal application because it's taking in many verticals and providing this view of, of lots of data that's ubiquitously available. So I think you know, that then evolves into smart cities and the rest of the things. And we just haven't seen any of that yet, but we will over the next five to 10 years. It's gonna be quite incredible how our lives change for the better and the data around us, it will be used to our benefit. Now, of course, there's a negative side to that that people perceive, which is, I don't like people spying, strokes, having my data, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, as, as long as you're a, a law-abiding citizen, I don't really understand why that, why that should be an issue. And then another one is big data. So if you imagine the, the Internet of Things takes lots and lots of information points and can immediately use them. So if you have two driverless cars heading towards each other and car A is on the left-hand side, for example, car B on the right. So in front of car A, an old man falls into the street um, in front. So car A has to swerve to avoid him. And it can't swerve left, it has to swerve right. Now, at that scenario, he's gonna hit car B. But now he can talk to car B directly and say, car B, I need to swerve towards you. Can you swerve the other way? And then I'm gonna miss the old man and I'm gonna miss you and we'll carry on with our day. That information is split-second data that is being driven from lots and lots of different data points. And we will use that in an in, in, in immediate way. And then, of course, all of that data gets stuck in a repository back in Sacramento somewhere or you know, a massive, massive data center to be analyzed. And that's what we call big data. So then the AI that is driven from big data, these thousands and thousands and thousands of use cases, helps those two cars to make better informed decisions later. And again, people are very worried about cars deciding what to do, but actually they're infinitely more reliable than humans deciding what to do. Because our judgment is impaired by a number of things that don't affect computers. We have a scenario, again, an emotional boundary to cross, but I think we cross that over the next five to 10 years as well. So big data is driving artificial intelligence and Internet of Things is driving the amassing of big data and also the use of immediate data to improve our lives. Yes, you get that scenario, don't you, where 
you're driving along and you would have swerved to avoid the pedestrian, but the computer works out that if you did that, you would kill another three people. It allows you to plow on. I mean, it's only what it's one of these sort of philosophical discussions. It is, yeah, but it's not going to be long before, I mean, we've already had a driverless car in the US kill a pedestrian, right? So it's not going to be long before we have a driverless car doing exactly that. So they're saying, you know, there's an 80-year-old man fallen in the street, and if I swerve, there's a lady pushing a pushchair with two three-year-old twins in. So it's going to do a calculation of, of average years to go and say that this 80-year-old's probably got 10 years left. And the combined life of these three is probably 200 plus. So I'm going to kill the, the old man. And then you've got newspaper headlines, computer consciously kills human, right? First of all, we would be not even in a position to do that. We wouldn't have a logical view of it because our, our instinct would swerve and probably make the wrong call. But then you could say, well, okay, well then another layer of that you know, that old man was actually the world's top scientist and tomorrow he would have been able to solve the cure for cancer. Okay. So then you say, well, how valuable is it then? And who makes the call between that 80 year old that's got 10 years left or 15 years left versus the 200 plus years of the family on the right? Somebody somewhere has written the code. Somebody somewhere has written the code. I suppose, or maybe if it's machine learning, the machine has worked it's it out based learning. on his... So the code, the code is written to allow the machine to refine its decision-making based on data that happens. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because only a couple of weeks ago, the story came out, although Google had pulled it a few years ago, where Google had built some machine learning to help it recruit female engineers. And the algorithm started rejecting the CVs of female engineers because, well, they never got hired. So it was a waste of time processing their CVs. And then they real, so they realized that it had looked at the pattern and come to erroneous conclusions. The code is effectively being written, not by somebody who is then checking it, but it's that sort of pattern learning. Is that not deeply scary? Well, it is scary. It's exactly how humans learn, by the way, <laughs> because when we have gut feeling, that is just the series of experiences that we've had that applies that gut feeling. And it's as bad or as good as that, but it's just slower. So if you think about, if you're walking down the street and you've got six hoodies with their hoods up and looking pretty scary walking towards you, you probably cross the road. Now, there's no reason for you to do that because you don't know those individuals. You know, and a hoodie is a, is a fashion item. It's not anything else. It's not a gun. But your gut instinct, so what you've seen on media, what you've had experiences of, or what you've heard on, on the news or whatever, is driving your reaction to that. Okay, so you are effectively doing machine learning, right? but in, in a few instances rather than billions of instances, right? There's no difference there. I mean, you know, it's something I think that, again, we can't unlearn technology. So this is going to happen, but it is very scary. There was a, um, an experiment I, I watched from a, a scientist. I think he was a Dutch scientist that uh, what they had was a, was a group of apes in a, in a large cage, maybe 15 of them. Uh, living in a sort of zoo type environment and they put some bananas at the top of one of the trees and the first ape that goes up to get the bananas everybody else gets sprayed with the water jet when he goes up and gets the bananas and this happens every time one of the apes goes to get a banana all the others get sprayed by a water jet so eventually none of the apes go up to get the bananas because all the others get angry with him so the moment one of them tries to go up and get the banana, they all jump on him and, and say, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, and beat him up. So eventually no one gets the bananas, okay? So the machine learning is kicking in here. 
So then what happens is they introduce a new ape to the group who's not seen any of that. So the first thing he does is he sees bananas. Oh, great. Okay, I'm going to go up and get the banana. And they jump on him and beat him up, and he learns that way as well. And as they introduce new apes that constantly go through this process, they take away the old apes one by one. And eventually you end up with a scenario that every one of the apes in that area will never touch the bananas, but none of them have ever seen a water cannon. I hadn't seen that, but I heard that story and I thought it was apocryphal. But then last year I was at a conference and somebody was speaking from Eastern Europe and referenced an article that was on the BBC. And when the German Czech border went through, when they put it in after the war, it split a forest and it split a herd of red deer. And so the border was, I don't know, multiple electric fences and deer had obviously been electrocuted. Here we are three generations of deer later and the border doesn't exist. And they put some radio trackers on the deer and the deer in these two halves still don't cross the border. It's just fascinating that learnt memory. To me, what it says is that's how bureaucracy gets created in businesses. It's also how prejudice exists, right? You know, whether that's racist or ageist or sexist or, or, or anything, but you know, you're applying irrational reasons to decision-making. And whilst you can have that with artificial intelligence, you can also have it very, very clearly with human beings and with animals. The irrationality of not crossing that line for a deer when there's probably a lovely piece of fruit or whatever they want on the other side, it's completely illogical, yet there it is. Well, let me take you to some of the charity stuff that you do, changing gears. So I think you said 6,000 homeless children in the UK. Is that going 60, up or down? 60,000, 60, believe it 60,000. And so what's 60, that? Homeless children. Under 18? Under 18. So, and a lot of those would be sofa surfers, right? So they may not actually be sleeping in the streets, but they're basically sleeping on someone's sofa and tomorrow they will be sleeping somewhere else and somewhere else and somewhere else. Now, the problem with this, right, is that with no base, no secure base, you're always open to vulnerability, right? People will come along and say, look, I'll give you a shelter for tomorrow, no problem at all. Then you're in someone's environment where they could influence you with drugs, they could drug you without you knowing. There's all these different factors and children are extremely vulnerable. There's one thing being an adult and making decisions conscious decisions, and we've just spoken about a lot of that, they may not be all that rational, but at least as an adult, you've got some sort of critical mass of gut feeling to depend on to make informed decisions, or at least you know, protective decisions. But as children, they don't. They haven't formed that gut feeling yet. They haven't got enough intelligence-based response code, if you like. They're extremely vulnerable. And when they're out there, and you know, they may have run away from home because they've got a violent father or, or an abusive parent or something like this. So they can't go back home. You know, very often you think, well, why don't you just go home? Well, you, they can't, right? And so getting these kids into an environment where they are, first of all, protected, and then second, then reintroducing them into what we perceive as normality. In other words, getting them educated, getting them through school, giving them opportunities, you know, bringing them into things like the Prince's Trust, for example, where they get support into getting a, a small business off the ground or something like that. It's really, really important. And, you know, we just do not realize how bad the homeless situation is in the UK. And how did you get involved in this? It's always been close to my heart. I mean, as a kid, I was born in, in East London and my dad was in prison when I was born. It was an extremely violent environment anyway. He was one of a large gang, very nasty chap. The moment my mother had an opportunity to escape him, um, we did, and she took me to Africa at the age of seven. 
not realizing that Zimbabwe was then Rhodesia, was in civil war, about to go into civil war. And we ended up being petrol bombed four times. One of them destroyed our house, so we became homeless there. Um, I was shot at 13 times. One of them got me in my leg. And then eventually at 12, we managed to escape that environment back to the UK. But at the airport, they stripped us of everything we owned. So our clothes, our luggage, our top coats, our jewelry, our money, our bag, handbags, whatever it is, everything except the single layer of clothing we're wearing and our passport. And when we landed back at Heathrow, we were effectively refugees back into our own country. So we lived in a squat in Stockwell for two years. And we basically earned money by breaking into old condemned houses and finding things that people had left there for demolition. And very often it would be the old upright pianos. And so we'd tune up pianos and roll them down the Old Kent Road and sell them at East Street Market for 20 pounds each. I, I know how scary that is, right? Not knowing how, how you're gonna get a roof over your head not knowing whether you're going to eat, you know, how do you keep warm? And these things are, are fundamental human rights as far as I'm concerned, right? And, and for children especially, you cannot expect those children to grow up giving a positive contribution to society when they start with such challenges. And so, you know, fixing that is, is the bare minimum, given the, the ridiculous fortune I've had in my life. It's the bare minimum that I can try and do. Do you think that's where your, where your drive comes from? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, one of the important things that I, I kind of apply to everything in life, especially business, but in, in every part is fear is an irrational emotion, right? Because we don't fear the past. We don't fear the present because we're dealing with it, but we tend to fear the future. And generally, either we can do something to influence the future to a more positive position for us, or we can't. If we can, we should do it. If we can't, we shouldn't worry about it. We shouldn't fear it. We should just get on and try and deal with things. And I think that attitude has always stood by me because when, you, when you've been shot at a few times, having a difficult board meeting doesn't really, doesn't really get on the radar of fear, if you know what I mean, right? So you relativize things and you say, well, okay, well, you know, we're all here to do what, right? We're here to create shareholder value. We're here to, we're here to do this. We have to do that. It's so easy once you get things in perspective. And we, we are very good at getting things in perspective the wrong way around, but we're very bad at getting it in perspective the right way. And I'll give you an explanation there. So if you think about, we rarely, we rarely sort of look at how well we're doing, how positive things are, how good things are. We're always looking at, oh, I didn't get that. I didn't get that. I didn't get that. We're looking at the negative side of things, right? I'll give you another example for actually another Dutch scientist. And you'll find this, you probably Google Dutch scientist ape grape experiment or something like that. I don't know what it's called, but if you'll, you'll probably get it with that. And there's a YouTube thing. And what this chap does is he puts two uh, chimpanzees in, in two cages next to each other. And um, he's taught them that if they're given, and the two cages are open, they can see each other. They're taught if they receive a stone from the assistant in the lab and they take the stone, they tap it on the floor and they give it back, they get a reward. And by the way, monkeys love cucumber. So the first one gets given a stone and um, takes it, knocks it on the floor, and gives it back and gets a piece of cucumber. Very happy, right? He's happy, he's eaten away, really nice. And then she goes to the other one, gives the stone, taps it on the floor, gives it back, and this time she gives a grape. Now the one thing that um, chimpanzees like more than cucumber is grapes, okay? And so the first chimp sees the second one getting a grape when he was very happy before having cucumber. Now he's saying, hang on a minute, <laughs> that wasn't fair. So you go back to the first one, it gives him another stone, 
and he gives the stone back and he gets his cucumber again. Well, he takes that cucumber and throws it back at the assistant. He says, I don't want that now. I know this guy's getting grapes, right? And so suddenly this relativization has sprung up where initially the first date was very, very happy with what he was getting. Now suddenly he's very unhappy with exactly the same thing because he sees someone else getting more for the same job, right? And then eventually this chimp goes nuts in there, going, shaking the bars and getting very angry. And this is exactly what happens in a, in a human environment as well. And, and one time soon, women will want the vote and everything. <laughs> do, and, but I have to say, I do think that there is something about the way in which the country voted in the referendum, where people are looking relatively at 85% of the journalists in the UK are in London. All the news you see in the regions is London biased. And if you're having a bad time in Middlesbrough and you see people in London doing well, one day you're happy with your cucumber, the next day you're not happy unless you're getting grapes. I don't know. I'm not sure. There's clearly a difference between the view of, of London and the rest of England, but Scotland also voted to remain, right? And the ma majority of Scotland, I don't think, is, is London. I think the whole concept there for me was about the issue here is do we want a very short-term, very painful situation with a prospect of being perhaps better over a medium term? Or do we have a very comfortable short and medium term on a slowly declining pitch, if you like? I don't think either of them are, are brilliant and they both bring their challenges. But I think the, for me, it was more about um, where do you take your pain? I think people were hoodwinked into on both sides, hoodwinked into voting specifically through media, media information, media misinformation, and so on and so forth. When, when, I, when I do my voting, when I have my, my own island and people are allowed to live there, it'll be a democratic environment because even though democracy is fundamentally flawed, it's probably the best of a bad bunch. Um, so it'll be a democracy. But what I do is every time people vote, everyone would get a vote. And then before you um, press the button, because of course it'll all be electronic voting and I don't understand why we have to send these bits of paper off where we get no guarantee that our votes have actually been recorded in this country, but, um, but it will be a, a single vote for everybody. And then before your, your vote is recorded, you have a simple um, multiple choice questionnaire to establish that you understand what you just voted for. So in other words, it will ask you three questions on things like um, education, defense, welfare, that sort of thing, and say, did you vote for this, this, or this in each of these topics? And if you can get 80% 80, 80 or more right, you get another vote, right? So it means that actually you're, you're taking responsibility for your democratic actions and saying, rather than just listening to hearsay, you need to think about what you're doing. And I think the referendum more than anything else on both sides has caused people to realize that people don't think about what they're doing so much as listening to uh, media. Yes. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to try and trick us into getting into a debate about Brexit. Uh, so I'll stop. <laughs> You're author of two books. Yeah. The first one was a business book called Forget Strategy, Get Results, which I wrote as a FTSE 250 CEO, which obviously went down well with my shareholder community. But basically, it's more about, I mean, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I believe that the rate of change, of change, if you know what I mean, is changing faster and faster. It's an exponential change curve that we're on. 
and technology is driving that. And historically, you know, I remember 25 years ago working for Fujitsu and the Japanese system then was write a 10 year business plan. And I've never had a business plan that, that's basically survived three years, let alone 10 years. And probably you won't have a business plan surviving a year in a few years time because things around change so much. Now, I prefer to have people that have a vision rather than plan on a strategy. If you have a vision, you can say, I want to be um, famous in the world for doing this. I want to be the best in the world at that. I want to... And how you get there is, is less defined than the vision is defined. Now, that's two things. One is you can articulate it across your employee community, your investment community very, very easily. Nobody has to read a large strategy document to understand how they personally can contribute to that vision. The second thing that, that happens is that as things change around you, remember we spoke about companies being Ubered, as things change around you, you don't have to go back to a manual and say, oh crap, what do I do now? And there being no answer in that manual for that, you can then say, huh, okay, I know where I have to be, I just need to tweak how I get there. And if you think about an experienced sailor that, that's sitting in Dover and he decides he wants to go to um, Calais for lunch tomorrow morning, and he gets up in the morning and he, and he sees that the wind is blowing 100% in the opposite direction against him. He doesn't just go, oh, well, that's it then. He says, well, look, it's going to take me a little bit longer, so I'm going to leave a bit earlier. And I may have to tack many more times, but I'm still going to get there and deliver my, my vision, which is to have lunch in Cali. So we can never control how, how the wind blows, right? But we can always control our sails. So, so what we can do is we can take advantage of all the things, the variables outside of our control and take advantage of them as long as we maintain a vision. But strategy, John Paul Sartre says something very cool. He goes, in football, everything is complicated by the presence of the opposite team. <laughs> and you can sit there on, with a whiteboard in the changing room and go, you do this and you do that. And but unless you tell the other team to come in and watch what they're supposed to do at this point, they're going to do something completely different and screw it up for you. And so the point is that, you know, you may have a game plan. And I think, I think um, oh gosh, who was it? Now, Henry Cooper, I thought it was. was or, no, it was Mike, Mike Tyson. Tyson. Yeah. yeah. He said that, you know, the game plan goes out the window, the first punch you take on the face sort of thing. So you've got to have a vision that you can adapt the, a sort of a tactical plan to at all times. So, so the forget strategy, get results is, is around that thesis, if you like. And it takes um, experiences that I've gone through over a sort of a 13 year period when I took Telecity from 6 million to, to three and a half billion, um, where as the business got bigger and bigger, it was increasingly more difficult to maintain vision rather than sort of written down strategy. But it goes through ways that I, it's not prescriptive. It doesn't say, you know, this is for everybody, but um, it goes through various things that I did successfully during that time to help deliver that principle. Effectively keeping a big business agile. Yeah. And then you've your second book. Second book was um, completely different. Um, it's called Live, Love, Work, Prosper. And this is, again, as I mentioned earlier, why, why sort of work-life balance just doesn't exist. And you need to find that integrated view of life. One example, people see technology as a kind of an inhibitor to having a proper work-life balance. And in France, for example, in companies, you're not allowed to send your employees emails after a certain point at night. You're not allowed. It's against the law. And so, you know, these things I find a very backwards view of technology. 
I always have my phone on the desk when, uh, or on a table in a restaurant. And I was out um, a few months ago with, a, with another couple and my wife. The other wife said, why, why have you got your phone on there? You know, why don't you switch off? Isn't it rude to put your phone on the table? And I said, look, I've got businesses in four continents, right? And, you know, there's always something going on. And generally, there's nothing that reaches my attention that needs my attention in an emergency case. But if my phone was in my briefcase, which is in the cloakroom, a little bit of my brain will be thinking, I wonder if there's anything going on. And being almost certain that there probably isn't, that's a wasted amount of energy for me, thinking about or worrying about stuff that may or may not be happening. But if it's sitting there in front of me and it doesn't light up and flash, then 100% of my brain is at the table, okay? I'm using that technology as a liberator rather than a ball and chain. So looking at that in a slightly different way is what this book is about, right? Using, using technology as a tool to liberate you rather than, than to lock you down. And I think people are generally a little bit nervous about technology in this case. An example, in Barcelona a few years ago, I was doing a talk on um, you know, how, how kids evolve their educational aspects. And, and, and basically, the comment I made was the average 14-year-old in the UK today consumes five hours of content for every hour they're consuming content. So think about that for a second. So basically, if a kid is absorbing content, usually what's happening is they're on their computer, they're on their phone, the TV's going on in the background, they might have headphones in listening to music. So there's all this stuff going on in any given period of time. And we look at that as difficult because our generation doesn't give the impression of being able to absorb multiple different tasks at any given moment. They don't have a problem with this. And I was talking about this and this woman stood up and I said that, um, we see this as a challenge with, with school and things like that. And this woman stood up in the audience and it wasn't Q&A yet, so I didn't have much time to prepare. But, and she said, are you condoning the use of all this technology by young, young, young kids then? And I said, well, I presume you, you have a problem with a 14-year-old at home that can't get off their computers. And she said, yes, I have a major issue. And I said, so let me give you a scenario. I said, if, if you came home and your 14-year-old was sitting there with a the laptop open doing their homework online, which they do today, and were texting their friend the answer to a maths question that the friend couldn't do, and had the TV on in the background because it was the history of the Phoenicians on a natural history channel, and they had their headphones on listening to um, Rosetta Stone Mandarin, you'd be dragging your neighbors in saying, look at my star child, right? You'd be saying, it's amazing, I can't believe it. So it's nothing to do with the technology. What we should be concerned about is the content, not the technology. The technology is just a tool. The content is where the importance lies. And we don't apply as much attention to the content as we do for the tools. And I think this is really a major issue going forward because again, we can't unlearn something. We can't uninvent technology. It's there, right? So we have to work with it rather than try and kick back against it. And the, and the second book is a lot about that. Very good. The 40 marathons in 40 days, and you're walking the length of Antarctica? What you yep. Crossing Antarctica or? Crossing Antarctica, yeah. So going from one side to the other through the pole um, by foot. And that's to raise money for um, Brain Tumor Foundation, which is um, helping kids with brain tumors. And this is something that I got introduced to through a good friend of mine, Lewis Moody, the former England rugby captain. And so we're doing that together. And he's passionate about that, that charity, so I'm, I'm helping him in this cause. But yeah, the 40 marathons of 40 days came around as a little bit of a, an odd thing as well. I was sitting in the uh, House of Lords at a reception 
um, to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Prince's Trust. And um, the president of the Prince's Trust was speaking at the lectern just beside my table. And um, while they were getting ready to start their, their speech, one of the chaps on the table said to me, what are you going to do for the, I've always done a lot for the Prince's Trust. And, they, and they, they basically said, what are you doing for the 40th anniversary? It must be something special rather than just the normal fundraising. So I said, um, yeah, I have any suggestions. And he said, well, why don't you do 40 marathons? And then the guy next to me said, yeah, why don't you do 40 marathons in 40 days? That's got a nice ring to it. And before I knew it, the president had, had overheard this next to her and announced it to everybody at the House of Lords that I was doing it. So my, my goose was cooked, as they say, and I had to get on with it. And it was one of the most painful things that I've ever done, but I'm glad to say I finished it. But again, you know, work-life balance. Um, I was doing them across London. I'd finish in a different location every day, uh, according to who sponsored me corporately on that day. So I'd, I'd start at half past three in the morning and I'd finish at half past eight in the morning. And then I'd prepare for a keynote speech in the headquarters of people like Fujitsu Dell, um, VMware, Ernst & Young, uh, KPMG, so every one of these would sponsor one of the days and I'd finish doing a, a keynote to all the people coming in in the morning, first thing, where I'd just completed a marathon. And then I'd, I'd get home, I'd have a ice bath and uh, get on with my day job. So you know, I didn't even have to stop work to do it. I, uh, I remember speaking to the guys at Dell the day you'd been in that morning. <laughs> that was one of my most challenging times actually because that particular one what had happened was that uh, Silver Lake, who are the private equity company behind Dell, it was the day they were announcing the deal between Dell, VMware, and EMC. And they said, what would be really great is if you could start at nine o'clock in Slough and do a keynote at VMware's headquarters, and we'll give you a VMware t-shirt. And then you run to EMC, which is on, in Hammersmith, and then do a keynote there, and we'll give you a, a VMware EMC t-shirt. And then you run to Dell's headquarters on Oxford Street and do a keynote there in the afternoon. And we'll give you one with all three. And then we'll get publicity around it and everything else. So I did this. But instead of it being a 42-kilometer um, marathon, it ended up being a 58-kilometer day. And it happened to be the hottest day of the year. And I was running throughout the day rather than in the early morning. So it was really, really, really painful. All for a good cause. But so how are you training for Antarctica? Because that sounds an altogether different and more grueling thing. Well, to be honest with you, I haven't even started yet. I have no idea what that entails. Again, I've committed to it and I'm, I have no doubt that I'll get through it. But between now and then, there's a number of training programs that we have to do, not, not least learning the optimum way to drag a sleigh through thick snow and also a little bit of uh, navigational skill sets that don't rely on Google Maps. <laughs> Yeah. Because when you look at Google Maps of the area, it's just a dot on a very, very blank background. So it doesn't really help you much. So I think the, um, there's some skill sets there that are, are needed to be learned. Well, I've got a year to do it. Oh, no, you did? Or is it you, do you have to drag everything? What's no, it's not supported. You have to drag everything with you. It's nearly 500 miles across by foot. Um, and it's pretty cold. There'll be days when you wish you were running a marathon to Dell on a hot sunny day. Probably, probably will. Mike, if you could go back in time over your 30 years of career, what, what's the one thing you'd do differently? Um, well, I, I don't have any regrets. I think, I think regrets are, again, a pretty useless thing, right? Because around the house, we have a principle that, that no one uses 
the words mistake or failure. We've replaced those with learning. Okay, so you either succeed or you learn. This was a, a lesson that was early taught to me, funny enough, by Brian Adams' cousin, the singer Brian Adams, which is another story. But basically, he taught me how to sell. And he said to me, he said, look, imagine you're a broom salesman. He said, and, and you know statistically that you will sell a broom, one broom to every hundred houses whose doors you knock on in a street. You know that because of your statistics and you, you know, that's the average. So you come to a street, you know, terrace street and you, you say, okay, I don't know where that one sale is, but 98 of these houses are just going to have a broom and they say, no, one of them is not going to have a broom, but can't afford mine. But one of them is not going to have a broom and can afford mine. So I just need to get there. You knock on the first door and you say, hello, I'm a broom salesman. and the guy slams the door in your face. Instead of being despondent, you should go, yes, because you're one step closer to your sale. You've just established that statistically you, you're going to get over a period of time, you're going to get one sale per hundred no's or per, per 99 no's. So you have to get through those, right? Regret for me is, it's an odd perhaps word. If, perhaps if I repose the question and say, what yeah. is it that you now know, which might not be secret knowledge, but it's just somehow you found it out late in life rather than early in life. And you would have, something would have been tangibly different if only you'd known it then. That's a really better, a, a lot better way to put it because I learned late in life that as well as giving me lots of resilience, my childhood with a very violent father and everything else gave me um, an attitude in particular towards relationships that I found was um, damaging to other people. And, and, and the reason for that was I constantly was searching for the need to be loved, if you like, or the need to be liked. And that meant that I wasn't a particularly good partner stroke husband in my first marriage in particular. And, and so I'm happily married now, having learnt the difference between my own insecurities in that department at the time and the realities of life. But, you know, had I learnt that earlier, it would have saved some of the more challenging personal environments that I'd experienced. But I'm very, very pleased I'd learnt that in, in the end. And it's caused me to have an incredibly wonderful family life now and a wonderfully um, loving relationship. So the quicker I could have learned that, the better. <laughs> but, you know, we are where we are. But I think, you know, in, in a personal base, we need to think about doing, I mean, many of us have experiences where our, our parents have perhaps negatively influenced us in some form or another. And we need to know that as, unless we do something different towards our children, then that cycle doesn't get broken. So, you know, we, we need to kind of stand outside of ourselves, I think, and kind of look in and analyze and say, what is going on here that I can look, look at differently to have a better perspective on life? Otherwise, our children become us, you know? And we wouldn't wish that on them at all. What books would you recommend people read? Um, well, I'm not a great reader, to be honest. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I like things with pictures. Having not gone to university and... and um, did an apprenticeship in, in electronics engineering, you know, I'm, I'm more of a sort of a, a pictures man. But there is one book that I've given to just about every employee that I've ever, I've ever had in any business, and it's called Who Moved My Cheese? It's a really small book, probably why I like it, big writing. But it's, but it's the story about um, two mice that are put in a, in a maze, and um, they find the cheese, and then one day the cheese is gone. And one of the mice starts panicking and going, oh my God, what am I going to do? There's no more cheese. 
and sits there and starts to mope and get miserable and you know just on, on the forlorn hope that the cheese comes back and the other one says all right i'm going to go and hunt down some more cheese so it starts finding you know going around and finding other cheese in the maze so one of them says my cheese is gone the other one implies that the cheese has moved and and of course there is no hope <laughs> for the one that just says my cheese is gone but there is hope for the one that says the cheese has moved because he can go and find the cheese again. Take some responsibility. Yeah. And this is going to happen more and more, right? The rate of change is, is changing faster. So our cheese is not going to be, you know, the amount of financial jobs that have just disappeared over the years since the um, 2008 crash. And those people have either, you know, reskilled or they've become in a very, very tight labor market and it's not been pleasant. So, you know, you've got, Today, a massive move over to, to Uber driving and things like that. Well, driverless cars is going to shift that piece of cheese, right? So, so we're constantly, ever more frequently, going to be needing to search out the next bit of cheese. And that's why I think it's an attitudinal thing that we need to, to embrace. And, and that, that book is so simple in its message and has, has, has endured for me quite a long time. So that's the one I would recommend, other than my own, of course. <laughs> The latest episode of your podcast is on canvas. It is. I'm glad you found it. <laughs> I was talking a lot and I wanted to give you a bit of a challenge in the downtimes you had. You never inhaled? Never. The interesting thing was that, you know, my 16-year-old son, you know, Chatham House, was the first question I asked him was, have you, have you taken any? And it put him a bit on the spot. But uh, being a very keen rugby player, he came out honestly and said, well, I've tasted some in cake form, but never inhaled because that's bad for my rugby. I've got a very, very smart, smart young lad there. Very good. So we should we legalize cannabis in this country, do you think? Yeah. In my opinion, it's less, less dangerous than alcohol. I think we already have a, a fairly significant alcohol problem in the UK. People binge drink here more than they do in, in most other European countries. And clearly that's a, an attitude that has stemmed from some form of making people at certain ages not allowed to have alcohol and then suddenly or making the period of time you can have alcohol limited again it's the same thing once it's out the tube you can't get it back now you've got canada that's legalized it you've got multiple states in the u.s that's legalized it in canada's legalized it completely right but you know medicinally it should be at least legalized it's got a value and it's got some side effects as well that need to be controlled and managed but at the same time just saying no to stuff when, when it's clearly available and clearly there is, is not the way forward. Mike, thanks for that. And thank <laughs> you very much indeed for, for talking to me this morning in the UK and this evening in, uh, in Sydney. Pleasure, pleasure. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc., social you can find me on twitter at dom monkhouse and linkedin at dominic monkhouse linkedin is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments thanks for listening <laughs>